TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damien Kristoff. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is The Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into your lives. Today, gentlemen, it's great to have you all on the line again, once for like two shows in a row now. It's fantastic. But more importantly, let's get right to our special guest today. I'm really excited about this particular call. But Damon, you couldn't stop talking about this man the other day after you went to uh, listen to him speak. Um, I'd love for you to introduce our special guest for today. Uh, thanks, LT. It's great to have you uh, back in the country with us. It's awesome. Um, Look, guys, the other day I had the privilege of attending a talk um, at Jackson School, and Jackson School puts on great talks for the parents and for the kids, and this particular talk was talking about adolescent health, mental health, and, uh, and we had the great pleasure of having a number of different speakers, but one of the speakers there stood out for me, and the reason why he stood out is because in many circles you, you wouldn't expect a general practitioner to have um, a great you know, grasp on the concepts of mindfulness or wellness, and this gentleman, Craig Hassid, who teaches at Monash, he teaches medical students about wellness and mindfulness. Um, he spoke just beautifully and purely, and he had all of the adults, the parents on the edges of their seats, hanging on every single word that he spoke about. And I thought, I've got to get this guy on the wellness, guys, because his message is great. And so, look, I'll keep it short, because I know Lawrence, you're busting to ask the first question, but... Craig does lecture. He's a GP. He's a lecturer at Monash University. He's implementing wellness and and, uh, and mindfulness into into Monash. He's also at a number of other schools and medical schools around the world and speaks to different organisations and industry about mindfulness and wellness. And so I'd like to welcome to the call today, Craig, Dr. Craig Hassett. Thank you, Damien. It's a pleasure to be with you. Dr. Craig, it's, it's fantastic to have you on. I mean, we we all know we live in a very, very busy world. Um, we're getting distracted all the time. Um, I coach clients and the clients are all telling me, like, we, where's the time? And uh, and it's not getting any better. And, uh, you know, obviously time is just moving at such a fast place and rapid race. And, and, and I kind of worry about for my kids, you know, I've got, a, you know, two kids, seven and four, and uh, they're, you know, their busyness is going to increase. And so we love, that's why I love bringing, I guess, like you, yourself to bring on the show because we get to talk about, you know, what, do we, what can we do now? now for our, this generation, but also what can we do for the next generation? But the first question I would like to ask, though, is how did you get started in mindfulness? Well, I, I, was, I guess I was a reasonably reflective um, adolescent myself. And uh, when I was sort of dealing with, you know, anxiety about sporting events and study and, you know, exams and so on, I, I'd, I'd noticed for myself that when I started to project into and worry about the future, I unhooked myself from what I needed to do in the present, made myself uh, feel bad. So, um, and I realized the more I focused on the present moment and what was in front of me, the the better I got at whatever I was doing, but also I noticed I felt a whole lot more relaxed and calm, free of uh, the, you know, the burden of all these kinds of concerns about how the future might or might not work out. And I guess I was taking my first steps into mindfulness, although I wouldn't have had the, that language for it at that time. And uh, and then, you know, as time went on, and when I was in a, in medical school in the early days, um, undergraduate program I was doing at Melbourne University, but there wasn't much about um, your own mental health and well-being in that um, program, I can assure you. So, uh, but um, I just noticed when I was feeling very disillusioned and where's my life going, and it's sort of like, I guess, an important point in my life then I for some reason I thought that meditation might help and being untaught and not having read anything about it I thought I'll just sit in a chair and uh, 
just be still and uh, just watch my mind and body and just um, I was really I guess intuitively practicing a mindfulness practice and uh, and I I got out of that chair feeling like a very different person and um, a totally different perspective on my own mind and uh, concerns and worries and uh, and I, it made such a profound effect on me and I could notice what effect it had on the body as well that this sort of whole mind body connection and um, and the importance of uh, mindfulness and meditation was, uh, I suppose you'd say, a no-brainer for me. So I, I, I thought, well, this is the direction in my career I want to go. And then later on thought, well, other doctors should know about this. And uh, so I got involved in medical education back in 1989 at Monash University. And it was a very open-minded kind of environment. And, um, and uh, it sort of grew from there. So, Craig, when you first started getting into this mindfulness stuff, you were you were at medical school. You were you know surrounded by doctors. Uh, what was the reception you got when you started talking to other uh, colleagues about this idea? As a medical student, uh, yeah, or, well, as, or a medical, as a or as a GP as well. Yeah, well, as a medical student, I didn't really talk to anybody about it. It was just sort of, I guess, something I was exploring uh, myself. And I, I, I guess, I got interested in the world's great wisdom traditions as well because. They've been under this for thousands of years, and so that already had those insights. But when I got started at um, at Monash, and um, uh, I can remember, I think it was both a combination of one for some people a closed mind, um, but uh, I think it was more my uh, difficulties in communicating about it and engaging. Uh, with it in a way that was relevant to people. Um, I, I found that um, the first uh, few times I tried to bring it up, it pretty much fell on deaf ears. But um, I found a language over the time and um, the science started to really expand and uh, found new ways of introducing it that made it practical and not sort of too otherworldly. And it sort of grew from there. So I, I, over time, there's been an increasingly positive reception and uh, and now there's a lot of invitations to to speak and present on these kinds of topics um, in all sorts of environments. That's true, isn't it, Craig? It's uh, it's become very, very popular. And I did notice actually that you were um, part, or not not necessarily part of, but you did speak on the mindful of May topic. Um, I'm not sure if it was last May, just gone, or if it was you know the previous May before. But um, that's a big movement, and it's gaining momentum. A lot of people talk about you know being mindful yeah. at least for a month, um, which is at least a good start. But um, how did you manage to get a program like wellness or mindfulness built into a medical program where there appears to be such constraint around what can actually be built into a program like that because of, you know, funding or, you know, um, hours allocation, all that sort of thing? Yes, it's not the kind of thing. It's surprising you could go through five or six years of a medical course and have nothing on well-being. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. The case that was put to the faculty and um, and also put to the Australian Medical Council um, when this new area of uh, curriculum was being introduced <clears throat> was um, uh, that firstly, the, the students' own mental health and well-being needs to be supported because there was just far too much data that they had high levels of depression and anxiety and courses provided nothing on how to help them to deal with that. The second thing was that one day as doctors, um, they'll be having people come along to them with uh, issues in relation to stress or lifestyle-related illnesses, and uh, they need to have much uh, firmer basis, uh, you know, clinical skills and how to help people with this. And again, it, it doesn't appear in medical courses, and so doctors are under-equipped to deal with the uh, the conditions that are really presenting in the modern day. 
Um, the uh, the next bit, of course, was um, well. There's all of this science coming out and uh, about the importance of lifestyle, mind and body, mindfulness, and um, medicine supposed to be a scientific course. And how is it that the modern doctor could um, be so undereducated in these fields of science? So uh, again, um, everything was um, put forward uh, had to be based on evidence and had to be based on science and um, as well as um, clinical practice and personal self-care. So it was uh, rather than trying to make the case to introduce it, uh, there really wasn't a case for not introducing it. It's like how could you make a case that this is not relevant to a doctor? There wasn't a, a case um, to the uh, contrary. Mm. You know, one of the things uh, um, when I was went through chiropractic college, you know, that that's when I first kind of recognized that there was, you know, started reading stuff about, you know, mind, uh, mind and body connection. And uh, I remember reading uh, Kenneth Pert's book on uh, molecules of motion. It really kind of changed my thought patterns of, of exactly sort of what actually happens for, you know, the physiological, you know, biology as well, what actually happens with motions. But, you know, there, there even within my college, um, when I went through it, there was always that resistance of not wanting to talk about it. You kind of mentioned that there was that resistance when you talk to colleagues. Um, why do you think there was so, such a big resistance in, in uh, institutions or even in society to embrace mindfulness, even in today? Do you think it's just purely on the science aspect of it? Um, because obviously that's not true anymore. But is it there's some sort of internal bias in there? What do you think that's the big resistance? Well, I think internal bias, paradigm shift, um, uh, just having had a fixed idea about these things, you know, 30, 40 years ago and never having looked again, uh, I think there are probably a range of factors. It is a paradigm shift. Um, Arthur Schopenhauer, who um, I think he coined the term paradigm shift, but uh, he uh, said, uh, uh, he's a philosopher of science, he said, oh, the, the realisation of uh, any truth goes through three stages. In the first, mm. it is ridiculed. In the second, it is violently opposed. and the third, it is taken as self-evident. And I think we're starting to move into the self-evident phase now because um, the level of interest in mindfulness and, and Monash has been tremendously supportive, um, uh, tremendously open to this and it's been integrated not just into the medical course but into most undergraduate degrees at Monash and uh, as well as programs for staff and um, we're developing online programs as well for people not just at Monash but um, uh, you know for the whole community so Monash has been um, tremendously supportive um, for this kind of work in uh, over the years uh, as it's sort of grown but you know some of that initial resistance I think was um, just being uninformed and being challenged to think in a different way. Well, I'm really curious as to how you overcame that because despite the fact that, you know, as I said, it's starting to become self-evident now, there'll be those who listen to this podcast who really focus on their food and really focus on uh, their exercise side and may not look as closely at the mindset stuff. And there'll be others listening in who think the mindset stuff is really important but perhaps having difficulty communicating that to friends or family or, or colleagues yeah. or, you know, other people around them. So, you know, what did you do to, to help start to overcome some of those closed minds? And, and also you mentioned before the difficulties in communicating and how you had to change your wording. What did you do to improve that wording to help make this accessible to more people? Yeah, well, I just found that if I said something in a way that um, <clears throat> met uh, with resistance or confusion, it was more a reflection of how I was communicating. And so I had to really ground things in, in practice and experience, um, bring it down to earth, but also anything that was said had to be based on good science. So I really had to to have a look, closer look, I mean, couldn't just make common sense statements. It's like, uh, well, what is the evidence? What does it say? And not to overstate the evidence at the same time, but um, so 
And I, I tend to find that if, uh, say, for mindfulness, if lead off with the evidence, here's the science, here's what it says, translate that into into language that relates to people's own personal experience. So you've got to be a good translator of one language, the language of science, language of science into the language of practice and um, daily life. And for me, there was a, a lot of learning to translate those languages. And then and then all of a sudden, well, people say, well, of course, attention's important. Of course, being present's important. Oh, it affects the brain in that way. Oh, it affects your memory in that way. Oh, that's the effect of multitasking. This is stress and how it affects the brain. Oh, it has an effect right down to the DNA of the cells. It affects your immune system in this way. And it's like, by the end of that, people tend to be pretty interested to say, all right, well, that's that's the background, that's the theory, that's the science, but well, what do I need to do to start to apply it? And that's that's where the re- learning really starts is when people step into the experience. But if somebody launches straight in with just going into the experience or speaks in too philosophical a way without the sort of uh, the background to it, then I, I think very often it's easy to to uh, lose people who aren't already on that on the page. Great, so yeah, think, yeah, that's great. That's a great point, and I think you know, in many cases, a lot around the um, um, the wellness. It's almost become a bit of a dirty word, wellness, but around that sort of um, environment, um, people come at it too philosophically initially, and then try to back mm-hmm. up their philosophy with the science. But uh, you've you've taken a different angle, which is uh, very clever. Well done. Yeah, I'm interested to find out, Craig, um, what you actually do teach the students and how long the course goes for um, in the medical mm-hmm. schools, and if there's much of a difference around the world with the way in which um, mindfulness is taught in these schools. Well, uh, I think at Monash we're the first university in the world to have it integrated as core curriculum and the mindfulness component was embedded within what we called the health enhancement program. And um, so the way um, I developed the uh, the program, uh, it was based around uh, uh, an acronym and the acronym is uh, ESSENCE. So that stands for education, so being educated about ourselves and our own motivation and behaviour. Uh, as well as being educated in the usual sense of the word. Um, so education, stress management, so that's the mindfulness and mind-body area. Spirituality, so where do we find meaning and purpose in our lives. Uh, exercise, so the importance of physical activity. Nutrition, connectedness, so that's our social support and relationships. And, and then environment, the importance of a healthy environment. So that spells the essence of health. And so the students learn um, about that and the clinical applications and the science through a series of lectures on each of those elements. And then the uh, students step into the tutorial room. So for two hours a week over six weeks, they um, uh, have one hour a week on the mindfulness component and then one hour a week on uh, each of the other components. But the way that we engage them with it is not just to talk about the theory of it, is the students reflect on their own lifestyle their own behavior, their own motivation, their own stress. And just to apply the strategies uh, in as much or as little as they want to in their daily life, but to come back, and even if they're ambivalent about making healthy change in their life, to come back and share about that. But they come back into the group each week and they share their reflections and insights. They keep a journal. So what they're doing is they're taking the theory from the lectures and they're applying it in their own life. Now, in the process of doing that, we want the students hopefully, um, to leave that program with more skills in how to improve their own mental and emotional health and physical health. 
Um, we also want them to actually understand the lifestyle change principles from the inside. So now they'll understand how it is for their patients. When the patients are one day trying to make healthy lifestyle change, they'll, they'll actually realize it's not always that easy. And uh, hopefully they'll have more empathy and more insight about how to work with the challenges around lifestyle change. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. 20 years ago, I studied to be a naturopath. I started studying to be a naturopath 20 years ago, which is amazing. I didn't think I was that old, but uh, it, it happened. One of my lecturers was a lady by the name of Grace Gawler, and her husband at the time was Ian Gawler. And I, I know they've since separated, but she introduced a term to us called psychoneuroimmunology back 20 years ago. And she mm-hmm. said at the time, there's an emerging science you know, around it. Um, it'll become popular. Um, we'll start to understand more about the body, mind, um, connection and how it affects the immune system and well-being and chronic disease and cancer and, and all of those sorts of things. And then, lo and behold, um, her predictions um, have come true, uh, which is great. And you featured in a documentary called The Connection. And, uh, and in that documentary, you explore all of those sorts of things. Can you tell us a little about the, the documentary, The Connection, um, Craig? Yes. Well, a lady, uh, she had a journalistic background. Her name is Shannon Harvey, and um, she had a serious uh, autoimmune condition. And uh, through her own experience, she discovered, uh, well, not only firstly that the medicine, uh, the, the treatments were in some parts as bad as the condition itself, and, and she realized she had to explore things she could do for herself. So she started to make some healthy changes in her life, and particularly the the mind, the stress, you notice how her emotional state influenced her illness. So it got her interested in the mind-body connection. She got an enormous amount of benefit from it. She came across a, a large paper that I'd um, written that was actually posted on the Gawler Foundation website for, for people who are interested in this. It was heavily referenced, and um, so, so she saw some of the science on that. So she asked if she could come and meet with me. We had a long chat, and I was talking about and and this was actually an interview on camera. So she was wanting to make a documentary called The Connection on this mind-body connection. So we did quite a long interview and I was mentioning lots of people. And anyway, she came back about eight, 18 months later and said, oh, Craig, I'd like you to have a, a look at the first um, cut, uh, the first edit of this. And uh, so I was there along with George Jelinek and uh, Ian Gawler was uh, part of it as well but she she um got in touch with all the, the rock stars of mind body medicine you know people like uh, john cabot and dean ornish and david spiegel and herbert benson and all these wonderful people uh, over in the states as well as uh, some other australian and other overseas experts and she put together this fantastic documentary that um, looks at so many different aspects of mind body medicine and psychoneuroimmunology is uh, one of the areas, but uh, there's also things like um, uh, epigenetics, how our state of mind influences right down to the DNA of our cells and uh, how things like meditation and yoga and how it changes the brain. It's a fantastic um, documentary if anybody, any of your listeners are interested in it. Oh, it's definitely fascinating stuff. And, uh, you know, we had Bruce Lipton here and, uh, on our previous podcast talking about that too as well. And it's just amazing stuff. But I do, I, Craig, I will have love this question if you can answer this question for me because it, it's a bit of a poll because mindfulness, um, you know, talks about being present and being focused on the present moment. And we all live, our, you know, very, very busy lives um, and or, you know, perceived busy lives. But there's also that theory of, you know, when when people look at their goals and their vision and people tell them you need to set your goals and set your vision and, and have create a future that you want and that pulls you forward. Um, is there 
can we be fully present all the time? And, and would that help us become happier, more successful? Or do we kind of need to also have that fact of being able to perceive ourselves, project ourselves in the future and achieve the goals and legacy that we want to allow that to pull us forward too? Like what's, you know, it, did, I don't know if I, I hope you understand the question, but is it important to actually also be future pacing and also be present at the same time? Well, yeah, it's a very interesting question, and my view of that is that that when we're most fully present, we have vision, we have insight, we can see what our calling is, what the direction or next step is. I think that's actually a, a part of being present, and and so I mean, we, perhaps we do need to plan and prepare. Now, if we're planning and preparing in the in the present moment, then that's that's mindful we're just here now planning and preparing for what we might need to do later in the day or next week or next year but that's a present moment activity when we start to worry about the future when we start to live the future before it's even happened uh, then we're unmindful and distracted and uh, often quite anxious and feeling bad mm. but I, i'll just share with you one one of my most mindful moments from my life um 1988 um, I'd been you know working for a few years in hospitals and general practices and and I really didn't feel called to to continue to work in that environment or at least in that way and I just sort of uh, just sort of felt happy to to in a sense be a watershed moment between leaving one job and just having my mind open to whatever might come next. And uh, it just came to mind, we'll just open the paper and I'll just have a look through. And I just thought, oh, it's the only time in my life I've ever looked at the job section, I think. But anyway, I just uh, I just thought, oh, I'll just pay attention to what's in front of me. And I noticed this advertisement there um, for uh, um, fellowship positions at the Department of General Practice at Monash University. I just saw that and this thought came into mind. Oh, medical education, oh, teaching, that's interesting. And then I just reflected, oh, gee, there are a lot of things I wasn't taught in medical school that I should have been taught. Mm. And then the next thought was, well, somebody should do something about that. And then the next thought was, do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And all of, all of a sudden, uh, I just had this sort of sense of feeling called to do it. Mm. And what stood between me and responding to that calling was um, my fear of public speaking, a mm -hmm. big fear of public speaking. And taking up a job as a lecturer at university would be the last thing you'd want to be doing. But I I just felt called. There was something that needed to be done, and I felt this sort of inner calling to do it. And then to not do it because uh, I thought my fears were more important than uh, attending to something I thought was useful and necessary, I thought, I, I'm not going to dedicate my life to my fears. So I had to find a way of stepping over that um, that aversion and so on. So, But for me, that was a very mindful moment. It was a vision. It was a kind of a sense of a direction to, to head in. Mm. I didn't have a clue how it would unfold, how the journey would unfold. All I knew was that in this moment, and I could, it felt very mindful to me, this was the direction I needed to head. So I think there's this curious paradox between being very present and actually having vision, having insight. And I think when people aren't present to themselves, they often miss their inner calling. They they miss that insight. They miss that intuitive moment of, um, of uh, what to do or when to do it. And we sometimes form such fixed plans with all of this 
assumption about where we think the what what's got to happen in the future. It has to be this and not that. We often get a very fixed idea and um, about how our life should unfold, and that can sometimes totally interfere with the natural flow of events. Mm. So I think it is a very interesting and curious paradox, but people very often notice when they practice being more mindful that they get more in touch with themselves, what's important, and um, and take the steps through their life in a much more attentive and present way. Uh, that, that was an awesome question, Lawrence, and an awesome answer. So I'm, I'm really glad that was asked. Um, I'm really curious about how this is filtering through because I think it's, it's awesome that we're getting this education out there around well-being and around mindfulness. But, but I think sometimes when it does get to the medical system, it can be so busy and stressed and focused on all of the crises and emergencies that are going on in our healthcare system that it can be hard to allocate the time and resources towards well-being in general practice as well. So how are you finding this is filtering through, Dr. Craig, and what are you finding are the barriers to that? Well, I think there are more doctors learning a bit more about this and more educators being interested in it. But I think it is really difficult for it to translate out of medical school or medical education to um, to community and practice. I think that there's a kind of a system that's entrenched in an illness model and it doesn't, uh, and, and doctors are very often not um, provided with the skills and the attitudes and the knowledge and the time uh, that it takes to actually implement a much more holistic or integrative um, approach to medicine. So I think the system really works uh, against um, doctors being able to, to do that and other health professionals for that matter. I think something like, say, the Ornish program was a wonderful example of, um, of uh, insight, uh, application and, and research. It's a holistic meditation-based um, group support lifestyle program which was tried for um, uh, for people with heart disease and then for men with prostate cancer and with wonderful clinical results in terms of reversing um, those conditions early in their development. But what they also noticed was there were massive cost savings, significant improvements in quality of life, um, as well as all the beneficial um, uh, clinical outcomes. And there's this kind of entrenched idea we've got to keep spending more and more money on trying to treat the illnesses that we actually should be preventing or intervening in an earlier stage in a much more holistic way. Yeah. And we're actually pouring huge amounts of resources um, uh, you know, into healthcare and getting less and less out of it the more expensive the interventions. And we're missing, I think, the main point. And I think that you know, stuff like the Ornish program are, are wonderful examples and, and that kind of research needs to be done far more, but it's hard to get research dollars for that kind of research compared to new drugs. That's where all the money is. That's a, that's a great point. I, I would say that in the uh, four years we've been doing these podcasts, we would have probably had 399 discussions about that same thing. So we do mm. we do absolutely get that and we, we understand where you're, you're heading with that one too, Craig. But Mate, um, you have written a number of books and, um, and you've written 10 books and you're saying you've got another one coming out um, and, and I've just been looking at some of them um, while we've been speaking, albeit I have been being mindful and I've been listening at the same time. Um, but you've got CDs on mindfulness for life and techniques. You've got mindful learning. You've got um, other e-books and, th- and the mindful home. You've got things that are, that are designed to assist people to uh, bring mindfulness into their life, which, which I love. Um, yeah, to be a writer, it requires a lot of skill, and um, and and for me, um, I I can't 
sit down and write for longer than an hour at a time. How do you maintain the mindfulness to write 10 books? Well, I I enjoy the process of writing. I, I suppose I've, I do try and apply mindfulness to it that I sit. I have uh, a mindfulness practice before I start writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't just write for the sake of it. I, I write when I when there's a, a real reason to write or when there's a, um, uh, a topic that really resonates. And then I just allow it to flow. Now, very often, a lot of background homework's been done in giving talks and lectures and presentations and so on. So I'm aware of the science and the kinds of things. But I just sit down and then in the moment, just trust the process and start writing and then watch where it goes and unfolds. So I don't overthink and I don't overplan it. Um, I, I tend to be reasonably, you know, sort of, I suppose, fluent when I'm, I'm writing. I just allow it to flow and then I go back over it and, and look at it. So I, I guess I write reasonably quickly when I write. Um, but I do like to have, at very least, a half day, uh, a better a whole day. I'd rather take a whole day and just sit down and write rather than, write a half hour here or an hour there, I find that if I keep on chopping and changing, I lo- lose the flow of what it is I'm trying to write. So, um, mm. But I really enjoy it when I get the chance to do it, but it's a bit of a luxury. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Dr. Craig, I'd love to uh, finish off with this last question. And, uh, you know, you talk about mindful learning, which is one of your books. And uh, I'd love to just hear your take on um, your your thought process on how do we, what are some of the things that you could, would recommend parents teaching their kids about mindfulness and, and strategies around that, you know, and how young should we start? Obviously, I'm sure it's as young as possible, but what are some of the strategies that we can take home? Like maybe two or three things that the parents uh, listening to the show can, can do. Well, I think the first thing in teaching kids mindfulness is for an adult or parent to be mindful when they're with the children. If we're not paying attention while a child's talking, if we're multitasking, then we're going to be teaching unmindfulness. So the Mm. first thing is to be mindful with the child to engage attention. The next thing is to create a mindful environment. Um, For a young child, limiting the amount of screen time, the more screen time a child has, the more distractible that child's likely to be in later life and have attention problems. Mm. So limiting or rationing the screen time. And choosing the screen time um, for a young child as carefully as you would choose the food for their body. And um, so, uh, and not um, uh, helping the child not to get into a habit of multitasking and rationing their use of um, technology so they use it as a good instrument, but they don't um, have their life dominated by technology, which can cause a disconnect from their life and the people that they're actually uh, living with and uh, every day if their attention sucked into that screen. The next thing is that um, children can be introduced to um, simple mindfulness meditation practices at a relatively early age. Um, groups like Smiling Mind have done a great job for that. And uh, But also, um, so those kinds of um, practices can be practiced. And then um, a child just learns to be more mindful and attentive, to taste their food, to notice the flowers when they're walking down the street, to to um, just be present and attentive when they're communicating so children can then translate the mindfulness into their day-to-day life. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Craig. It's just been wonderful to have you on and I'm sure the listeners are going to get some insights from you and uh, thank you for sharing so much of your time and uh, your knowledge. 
No, it's been fantastic um, talking to you all. Thanks very much. So, guys, listen, uh, what we'd love for you to do, uh, we'll add all the links. He's got 10 books, so therefore we'll, we can't uh, name all the links. So what we're going to do is we're going to put it on the show notes. Uh, make sure you go to thewellnesscouch.com. That's our new website. Uh, it's brand new. Love, love to hear what you think about it. But also below this particular episode will be the links to his various books that you would like uh, you can purchase. And also uh, to the, move, uh, the movie, you can also purchase the movie called The Connection. Uh, that's going to be fantastic for you guys to go grab that too as well. So, guys, it's been a great episode. Make sure you go to facebook.com slash thewellnessguys or the wellness couch. Like us there. Make sure you comment below this particular episode and tell us how you become mindful uh, in your day-to-day life. And uh, we'll love to share those insights uh, with everybody. Make sure you also share this podcast with your friends, family, and other strangers you think need a wellness update. And also, please subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a comment there because that's going to help sp- spread this show out to the masses to be able to really create the wellness update that we think everybody needs in this world. Until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example. Let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guy Show. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.